Would you pray with me? Father, we, we come this morning, and God, we are thankful that we are not saved by our good works. But God, you are our salvation. And we are justified by faith alone in Christ. And so for that, this morning, God, we give thanks. God, I ask that you would bless us now as we look into your word. I pray for wisdom and guidance as we study your holy scriptures. God, would you teach us more about who you are and of your calling upon our lives, Lord. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. In high school, I was very shy. And I've, I've told some of you that before. And uh, a lot of that shyness, honestly, especially in high school around my peers, was that I was intimidated by girls. Um, and so the, the thing that intimidated me was one word, really. The big R word, rejection. And so I lived my life fearful of rejection. And so in high school, I finally worked up the nerve, and I think it was probably more of some of my buddies pushing me and urging me and stuff. And I decided to ask this girl out on a date. And so it was all I could do. I mean, everything that I had in me to ask this girl out on a date. And I asked her, and you know what she said? I have plans that night. And I was thinking, oh, Man, well, maybe next weekend. Yeah, yeah, maybe next weekend. And so me and my buddies, that night that I asked her to go out on a date, we're like, hey, let's go out to the mall. And we went down to the mall. And as I came to find out, her plans consisted of walking around the mall, I think, with her parents. Um, I don't know. And so her plans were not any plans other than not to go out on a date with me. That's what her plans were. And I had come face to face with the big R word, the big word of rejection. And so... Here are the questions that bounced around in my mind in those moments was, would every girl on the planet reject me? Would every girl I come to, would I always get rejected? And then another question I think would follow up with that was, was, should I ever ask another girl out on a date or is this the final say? Is this like the death knell of me for dating? I'm done. Game over. Right? Those were the two questions in my mind as a teenage boy. Now, as, as history tells, fortunately, I did find the nerve to ask my wife out on a date one day in college, and praise the Lord, God gave me an incredible wife, of which I am just blessed beyond uh, imagination, and I am thankful for her. But the reality was, in those moments, I was almost traumatized, and I was thinking, the end is here, I can't do it, I can't go forward. When we look at Romans 11... Paul asked the same two questions about Israel. He asked the same two questions. We're going to look at this morning, Romans 11. We're going to start in verse 11 where we picked up or where we left off last week. And we'll read through verse 24 if you want to flip there. But essentially, in Romans 11, Paul is asking the same two questions I asked as a teenage boy. He's asking, was Israel's rejection total? That's what we covered last week in the first 10 verses. Was Israel's rejection total? Has God completely rejected his people? In verse 1, and his answer was what? 
by no means. Why? Because God is faithful. So Israel's rejection was not total. But the second question that Paul deals with with the rest of Romans 11 is, was Israel's rejection final? Was it final? So he's anticipating these two questions, and that's what he asks. And in verse uh, 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And again, his answer is, by no means. No. Their, their rejection is not final because God is the God who has a plan. And so it was not total. It was, there was a remnant chosen by grace, he says there in verse 5. So there, there was some that God preserved. We remember that Paul used himself as a, an example. He said, God has preserved me. God has bring, brought me to salvation. And so I know God has not rejected all of his people in totality. And he's also not, also not rejected them finally because what we'll see in verses 11 through 24. We're going to study that this morning. Now as we progress through chapter 11... One thing that I want you to be aware of and thinking about, especially contextually, is you need to be aware that Paul kind of flips back and forth between Israel as a nation and Israel as individual Israelites when he's referring to them. We, we see the same thing in the Old Testament. You hear about how God blesses the nation, God blesses Israel, but within Israel we see time and time again how there are both wicked and righteous, how the wicked... Um, the wicked are cast aside, the righteous are, are experienced the blessing of the Lord, the, the curse of the Lord is upon the wicked, the blessing of the Lord is upon the righteous. And so we see individual Israelites within the nation of Israel. So the nation has God's special hand of blessing upon them, but individuals may or may not do, due to their life and their life of faith. So we see that here in chapter 11. I want you to read chapter 11, verses 11 through 24 with me this morning. Paul writes, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So he's asking, was the purpose of their stumbling that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Or their full acceptance or their total acceptance mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Do you see there's a connection there? What was, what was God's purpose? To make Israel jealous? What does Paul do? He magnifies my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. But fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness 
and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? What I want to do is is that we're going to break this passage up into three sections. And those three sections, I believe, show us three principles for how we live our lives, okay? And so the first principle we're going to look at is verses 11 through 12. It informs the way we live because we live with hope. So the first principle for how we live is we live with hope, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, what does this mean? What is he asking? There's a difference in stumbling and falling, there's a difference. If you're running a race, and, and I, there's been many times that I, I've run, whether it's a race or especially trail races, trail runs where you're running, and I might stumble. Maybe my, my foot lands and I, I kind of turn my ankle a little bit or my toe catches on a, on a stick or, or a rock and I'll stumble, but I catch myself and I keep going. I don't really lose a lot of speed in those moments. It's not final. But there are also times where I stumble, and when I stumble, I fall. And I've seen people in races, this hasn't happened to me, but I've seen people in races where they stumble and when they fall, they are done. It is the end. It is final. Whether it's because of an injury or it just put them out of contention. What Paul's asking here is did they stumble? Stumble being a temporary misstep. Or did they fall? Were they cast away? Was it permanent? Is it irretrievable and unredeemable spiritual sin? So did they stumble or did they fall? Did they stumble so that they might fall? Was the stumbling there so that it would lead to this irretrievable, unredeemable spiritual sin and rejection, the spiritual ruin? And Paul's answer is what? His answer is no, by no means. No, it is not. So how can he say that? How can he say that? He goes on and we see that the reason he says that is because he knows that Israel is not totally lost. There is hope. And that hope is found in God's plan. I I want you to see something in this passage. We're going to have to kind of flip through the verses here. But Paul does something five times in this passage that reveals his hope in God's plan. There's a progression that you see in five different places that goes Israel's loss, blessing to the Gentiles, and then resulting in in, um, Israel's future blessing. So Israel's loss or their rejection, their setting aside, which brings blessing to the Gentiles, which then brings blessing back around to Israel. We see this in verse 11. Did they stumble in order they might fall? No. Through their trespass, right, there's their rejection. Salvation comes to the Gentiles. Why? To make Israel jealous. To make Israel jealous. The purpose of them making Israel jealous is what? Israel's salvation, that Israel might trust in the Lord. In verse 12, we see the similar progression. Their trespasses means riches, some at Gen, uh, Israel's trespasses means riches for the world, the Gentiles. And their failure means riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? The blessing will be poured out upon them. We see the thing in the second part of uh, verse 12 as well. And then again, verse 15, 
we see the same progression. Their rejection means reconciliation of the world. Their acceptance will mean life from the dead. We see this progression over and over again. And then as we work through the whole of verses 17 through 23, that same progression is noted. That Israel has rejected the Lord. But God has a plan. And that plan includes bringing salvation to the world, to the Gentiles, so that then Israel would be made jealous and come back to the Lord and that He would be their salvation. So not only is there hope, but the hope from the Lord is magnified and multiplied. He he says, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And we see that God is a God who has a plan. So while the Jews were, were being hardened, and while today many are hardened, the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles. That's God's plan. He's revealing that. He's showing that to us, that, that God has a plan. I, I think of it like this kind of this game of divine chess that's going on. This game in which Satan, you can kind of picture him in, in thinking that he has dealt this fatal move, this fatal blow to God. The very chosen ones of the Lord have been, have been set aside. They've rejected the Lord. But see, what Satan does not realize, and what we have to know, is that Satan has forgotten that God is no mere equal chess player. He is not one that is playing on a level playing field in the game of chess. Because Satan is playing against the creator of the game. He's playing against the owner of the board. He's playing against the crafter of the pieces, and he's playing against the master who possesses absolute and total knowledge of the game. He is playing against the one who the game was created for, by, and through. The game exists by God and exists for God, and God knows what's going on. And so when it looks like this move has been made and that victory has come upon the enemies of the Lord, God says, oh no, (laughs) oh no, I have a plan. And my plan is that this has happened so that this will happen, so that ultimately this will happen. And that is my great and my beautiful plan. So this move of stumbling Israel that led those opposed to the Lord to celebrate in victory actually results in the floodgates of the gospel being opened up to the nations. It's the same thing that happened in that moment when the enemies of the Lord rejoiced at the slain body of the Lamb of God. Until we saw the ultimate victory cry of the risen, roaring lion of Judah. It's the same thing going on. We see it time and time again that God has a plan and therefore we have hope. We live with hope. We live as those with living hope that we just sang. So we see that God's plan is magnified. His grace is magnified and it is then multiplied. The riches of His grace poured out to the Gentiles. And Paul's looking forward. He's looking forward as an apostle to the Gentiles. He's looking forward to God's plan. He's looking forward to how God will carry out his plan in saving his kin. Remember, we talked about his desire for the Jews to come to salvation in Romans 9, 1 through 4, and then again in Romans 10, that Paul longs for the Jews to come to salvation in Christ. And Paul lives with a confident hope in God's plan to do just that. So we too live with hope. The second thing we see in this passage is that we are to live on mission. We are to live on mission, verses 13 through 16. We see 
in verses 13 and 16, we see that God has a plan. We started reading of it in verse 11. We talked about it. I pointed out to you, do you see the connection? What was God's plan in verse 11? Was it salvation would come to the Gentile? Why? To make his people jealous. It's the same thing that we read in Deuteronomy 32, 21 in the Song of Moses. When the people rejected the Lord, and he's going back through and recounting that, he says, they have taught God, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So, God says, I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Why? Because God is working to bring his people back to himself. God has a plan, and he does not relent on that plan. He is making Israel jealous so that they might trust in him and come to salvation. Now look at Paul's mission. We know that's God's mission. That's God's plan. What is Paul's mission? It's it's to join in with God's mission. It's to come alongside God, right? He says that, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Why? Because I know that's God's plan and I'm going to magnify my ministry. I'm going to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to make Christ known. Why? Because I want my Jews to become jealous and to see the grace and the salvation of the Lord and turn to Him. And His hope is what? And thus save some of them. His longing is that Israel would come to faith in Christ. Now we have to note here, and this might be more important next week when we look at a, a difficult statement that is up for interpretation in next week's sermon in chapter uh, 25, or verses 25 to 32, but he says, and thus save some of them. Paul's desire is that some of Israel would come to saving faith. Remember last week we said we understand that, that Paul work, walks that delicate line of knowing that Israel has a very special place in God's plan. But as a part of that plan and in that special place, they do not live according to a different standard for salvation. All are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And here we see a glimpse of that already where Paul says, I hope to save some of them. He understands that all individual Israelites will not come to faith in Christ. But his desire is that some may that some would trust the Lord. And so he understands God's plan, and he comes in and he tracks identically with God's plan. Paul carries out his ministry in view of God's greater plan. And we must do the same. We must look and go, what is God's plan? God's plan, as we talked several weeks back in our series on the church, God's plan is to make his name known. It's the plan that we sang of this morning. As we started by singing Psalm 67, let the nations be glad. God's plan is that the nations would rejoice and praise Him, and we have to come into that plan. That we would live our lives so that people would come to faith in Christ, that the nations would rejoice and be glad in Him. That should shape what we do, it should shape why we do it, it should shape how we do it. That we want to live according to that plan, we desire to carry out that mission and that ministry in our lives. So we come in. We do not get sidetracked. We do not get discouraged by the situations we face, but we press on. So in the face of the uncertain days that we live in, in the face of a church that is scattered, in the face of a time which we don't know what's going on, chaos is at an all-time high in our nation perhaps, we do not cease to carry out 
the mission that God has put before us. We will press on because we live on mission for God. So we live with hope. We live on mission. And then third, we live with gratitude. We live with gratitude. We live with thanksgiving. Listen, I just want you to hear this passage again. There's a lot that Paul says in verses 17 to 24. I want you to, to hear this and just take note of the, the, the thanksgiving that Paul pushes us towards, the gratitude to reject pride. He says, if some of the branches were broken off. Now, the, the branches refer to who? Israel, the Jews, right? Some of the branches were broken off. And you, although a wild olive shoot, so a wild olive shoot is who? The Gentiles, right? They were grafted in, or were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root. The nourishing root refers to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay, so if the others, and you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. Do not become proud. Why? Because we did not graft ourselves in. It was not a work of ourselves. We have to reject spiritual pride. And Paul knows he's speaking to the Gentiles. He said in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And he knows what? He knows that it is easy for us to become proud. It is easy for us to say, hey, look at us. Man, Israel, the chosen nation of the Lord, has stumbled. They have rejected their God. And now, look, we have salvation. The gospel has been opened to us, and we've trusted Him, and we are receiving the blessing of the Lord. And Paul understands that that can breed pride. So he says, do not be proud. Do not be proud. Yes, the nation that thought they would be a blessing to the Gentiles has been set aside temporarily. They've stumbled so that the Gentiles' faith would result in their blessing. God has a plan. Paul says, don't be proud. This is not of your doing. This is not from who you are, what you've done. He's expressing the truth that the one saved by grace is to be humble for there is no cause for pride. The one saved by grace should be humble, should be thankful, should be grateful. That should be the way we live. That we live lives of immense gratitude. Because we have been crafted in by the great gardener. We did not do that ourselves. It wasn't our plan. I don't graft myself in as a branch into the tree. The gardener does that. And we have been grafted in, and so we are thankful. We are not grafted in by works, but the root supports you, he says in verse 18. We are supported by the root. It's the root. We talked about the root here. or Elsewhere in Scripture, the root might, is in Colossians 2, uh, verse 7, I believe it is, 6 or 7. The root refers to Christ. Be rooted in Christ, Paul talks about. Here, contextually, you see that the root, verse 16, talking about the whole lump, um, and the root is talking about the patriarchs. The first fruits, 
the root is holy, it's set apart. And here in verse 18, he says that you are supported by the root. What does that mean? It means that Abraham, the patriarchs, those who went before, they were not justified by works. They were not justified by who they were. They were justified by faith. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6 says. And we too are supported by the same. Faith in Christ alone saves. We're not saved by who we are. We're saved by who we trust. We're saved by Christ. And so we live with hope, we live on mission, and we live with gratitude. Now here's the question, I think, that resounds from this passage that we have to ask ourselves and that I must ask you today, is will you believe? Do you believe in Christ? See, what we find out in this passage is it really doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Belief in Jesus Christ is the key. That's what it all comes down to. Look with me. Verse 20. What does it say? They were broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Well, but you stand, he says, but you stand fast through what? Through faith. Through belief. In verse 23, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. He is able. He has the power. But what is necessary? Even if they do not continue in their unbelief, belief is necessary. They're broken off because of unbelief. We stand in Christ through faith. They do not continue in their unbelief. But if they believe what will happen, they will be grafted in again. You hear the... the, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that, that verse just echoing in Paul's mind that for by grace you've been saved through faith. By grace you've been saved through faith, he says there. It's, it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no man may boast. He's just said, do not become proud. Do not be arrogant. Why? Because you can't boast. You were saved by God's grace. You were saved through faith. Belief in Jesus Christ is the key. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. You may have gone to church longer than I've been alive. And it doesn't change the fact that it is faith alone in Christ alone that saves you. It is not church attendance. It is not the region of the country you're from. It is faith alone in Christ alone, by which you must be saved. He says, he, he spurs them on in verse 22. He says, note then the kindness and severity of God. Listen to Romans 2, back where we began, where Paul talks about the kindness of God, the severity of God, the wrath of God. Listen to what he says. Therefore, starting in verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, he's talking about the judgment of those who are saved or lost. He's not talking about holding believers accountable. We see that clarified in Scripture. Verse 2, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... 
you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, talking about living in sin, that you will escape the judgment of God? Oh, note, note the severity of God. But now listen, verse 4, listen to the kindness. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do, do not presume upon the riches of His kindness and His forbearance and His patience. Paul says in, in Romans 11, remember the kindness, note the kindness, pay attention to the kindness of God. Why? Because of what he says here in 2 verse 4. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Note the kindness of God. Yes, God is a loving God. God is a righteous God. God is a wrathful God. So note the kindness and the severity of the Lord. Know where you stand. Examine yourself. Have you trusted in Christ and Christ alone? His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So do you believe in Christ have you heard the words of John 3 36 that whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him whoever believes John writes in the son has eternal life do you believe do you believe oh note the kindness and the severity of God Note the one who is kind and shows his loving kindness in sending his son to save helpless sinners. But hear and know the warnings of the Lord and the severity of God that he will cut those off and he will punish those eternally who reject him. So at the end of days, there is no second chance when we stand before the Lord. It's either have you believed or have you not. And you need to know the kindness and the severity of God. You need to know what Pastor Mike read earlier in our time of Scripture, Titus 3, 4-7. through 7, He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That, that's, our, that's our song. So I would ask again, do you believe? Do you believe? Will you believe? Will you turn from your sinfulness and turn to Christ in faith? It doesn't matter who you are. God is able. God is able to save you. He says in verse 23, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Why? For God has the power to graft them in. Again. God has the power. He is the God who is able. So if you do not continue in your unbelief, God has the power to save. Would you turn to Him? Would you join with us 
and sing of His amazing grace. Believer, do not be arrogant. Be not proud. It is God who saved a wretch like me and a wretch like you. So be not arrogant. And I would pray that when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that it truly is a sweet sound. That it's not just words that we mumble or words we say, but it's the tune of our heart. That we sing of God's amazing grace. Grace, grace, greater than our sin. That we are recipients of the kindness of our God. And as recipients, we live with hope. We live with a living hope. Peter writes of in 1 Peter 1. And we live on mission to take the gospel to the nations that some might be saved. And we live with gratitude to the one who saved us by his grace that was greater than our sin. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your great grace we rejoice in your plan in your purposes god we live in hope of your plan and your purposes god we confess that there are times where it does not make sense there's times where we can't see it there's times where it seems as though you're not working but god we trust you to be working because we've seen how you've worked in the past and we trust god that you do have a plan and that you are carrying that plan out and so we live in hope of that plan we live in hope of your grace and God we commit ourselves to your mission we commit ourselves to magnify our ministry our calling our mission that you've given us to make the gospel known and God as we go and as we tell others the gospel we will do so with great gratitude of your amazing grace So God, would you use us to make your name known? Would you use us to display your grace and your kindness and to warn of your severity and your wrath that many would turn and trust in Christ alone? We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.